Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Welcome to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 29, the 1919 Race Riots. Patrick, it's good to see you. It's been a while since we did a podcast. You're right, Chris. We've been a bit remiss and have taken time for other things instead of cranking out podcasts once a month, but life gets busy. Also, you recently made a move north of the Cheddar Curtain. <laughs> the, the Cheddar Curtain. Cheddar Swiss, you know, yeah, what, what, whatever it is. Yeah, I'm here in Milwaukee nowadays. You moved up there because you thought the beer was better than Chicago. It wasn't the beer, honestly. I just, I think it was time for a change to a little smaller community and try that out after 30 years in Chicago. Well, even though you're now a cheesehead, you are still a Chicago historian at heart. Yes. Speaking of history, there's a lot of monuments in Chicago honoring things that happened in our city, Patrick. I thought I'd give you one of my quizzes. Oh, yes. Let's do one of your famous quizzes. Okay. So let's begin. What does the stone reliefs at the corner of Wacker and the Michigan Avenue Bridge honor? The Battle of Fort Dearborn. Absolutely. Here's the next one. What about the monument at Randolph and Desplaines? Randolph and Desplaines. It's kind of near where the Haymarket might have been. Yes, you got it. The Haymarket. Very good. That's the site of the famous Haymarket riot. Okay, excellent. On to the third question. What does the Statue of the Republic on Hayes Drive in Jackson Park commemorate? Oh, well, that, I've been down there before. That That's a replica for the Columbian Exposition. Absolutely. Yes, it was put up in 1918 for the 25th anniversary of the World's Fair of 1893. It's a third of the size of the original. You've been right so far. Well done. Okay, what about the monument to the 1919 race riots? Chris, I don't, I don't know that there is any. Well, Patrick, you're right, because there is not one. As far as public art commemorating that event, it is invisible and not by accident. Well, it's not surprising. I mean, the city's not always been great about commemorating tragedies, because, for instance, I can think of the Eastland disaster. Oh, yeah. That was mostly not talked about, and nobody wanted to really commemorate that until maybe close to 100 years later. I should say, unlike the Eastland, there are events that city leaders want to remember, and there are those that they do not. And the 1919 race riots is one of those events that has been forgotten on purpose. And that's what our program is about today, the 1919 race riots in Chicago during what was called the Red Summer with racial strife all over the United States. So because there's no public memorial for this riot, there is no civic memory of it. And I would argue, Patrick, that most Chicagoans, even those who are up on their history, may not know anything about it. We're going to dive into it with this. But it, again, it was something that you and I, before we started doing a bit of research for this episode, really knew very little about. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to be talking about the 1919 race riots on the podcast today. And to do so, we are joined by Claire Hartfield, author of A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919 which was the winner of the Coretta Scott King Book Award in 2019. And will also be aided by commentary from Dr. Charles Branham, an historian who we had the pleasure of interviewing for our podcast on the Great Migration. He was really great to talk with. But before we get to the analysis of the race riots, I think we need to explain what actually happened during that day in 1919. And for that, we can go to the source, so to speak, the official report, the Commission on Race Relations, issued by the Office of Governor Frank O. Loudon on the causes of the riot. And they published about a 600-page report entitled The Negro in Chicago, A Study of Race Relations and a Race Riot. This commission, which you discovered online, Patrick, is excellent. But before we get into the influence of it, let's dive into the facts that the report uncovered. 
It was four o'clock Sunday afternoon, July 27, 1919, when Eugene Williams, 17-year-old Negro boy, was swimming offshore at the foot of 29th Street. This beach was not one of those publicly maintained and supervised for bathing, but it was much used. Although it flanks an area thickly inhabited by Negroes, it was used by both races, access being had by crossing the railroad tracks, which skirt the lakeshore. The part near 27th Street had, by tacit understanding, come to be considered as reserved for Negroes, while the whites used the part near 29th Street. Walking is not easy along the shore, and each race had kept pretty much to its own part, observing, moreover, an imaginary boundary extending into the water. Williams, who had entered the water at the part used by Negroes, swam and drifted south into the part used by the whites. Immediately before his appearance there, white men, women, and children had been bathing in the vicinity and were on the beach in considerable numbers. Four Negroes walked through the group and into the water. White men summarily ordered them off. The Negroes left and the white people resumed their sport. But it was not long before the Negroes were back, coming from the north with others of their race. Then began a series of attacks and retreats, counterattacks and stone throwing. Women and children who could not escape hid behind debris and rocks. The stone throwing continued, first one side gaining the advantage, then the other. You want to read the next paragraph, Patrick? Sure, yeah. Williams, who had remained in the water during the fracas, found a railroad tie and clung to it. Stones, meanwhile, frequently striking the water near him. A white boy of about the same age swam towards him. As the white boy neared, Williams let go of the tie, took a few strokes, and went down. The coroner's jury rendered a verdict that he had drowned because fear of stone throwing kept him from shore. His body showed no stone bruises, but rumor had it that he had actually been hit by one of the stones and drowned as a result. On shore, guilt was immediately placed upon a certain white man by several Negro witnesses who demanded that he be arrested by a white policeman who was on the spot. No arrest was made. The tragedy was sensed by the battling crowd and awed by it. They gathered on the beach. For an hour, both whites and Negroes dived for the boy without results. Awe gave way to excited whispers. They, said he, was stoned to death. The report circulated through the crowd that the police officer had refused to arrest the murderer. The Negroes in the crowd began to mass dangerously. At this crucial point, the accused policeman arrested a Negro on a white man's complaint. Negroes mobbed the white officer and the riot was underway. One version of the quarrel, which resulted in the drowning of Williams, was given by the state's attorney, who declared that it arose among white and Negro gamblers over a craps game on the shore, quote, virtually under the protection of the police officer on the beat. Eyewitnesses to the stone-throwing clash appearing before the coroner's jury saw no gambling, but said it might have been going on. But if so was not visible from the water's edge. The crowd undoubtedly included, as the grand jury declared, quote, hoodlums, gamblers, and thugs, unquote. But it also included law-abiding citizens, white and Negro. This charge that the first riot clash started among gamblers who were under the protection of the police officer, and also the charge that the policeman refused to arrest the stone thrower, were vigorously denied by the police. The policeman's star was taken from him, but after a hearing before the Civil Service Commission, it was returned, thus officially vindicating him. The two facts, the drowning and the refusal to arrest, or widely circuit reports of such refusal, must be considered together as marking the inception of the riot. Testimony of a captain of police shows that first reports from the lake after the drowning indicated that the situation was calming down. White men had shown a not altogether hostile feeling for the Negroes by assisting in diving for the body of the boy. Furthermore, a clash started on this isolated spot could not be augmented by outsiders rushing in. There was every possibility that the clash, without the further stimulus of reports of the policeman's conduct, would have quieted down. Chronological story of the riot. After the drowning of Williams, it was two hours before any further fatalities occurred. Reports of the drowning and of the alleged conduct of the policemen spread out in the neighborhood. The Negro crowd from the beach gathered at the foot of 29th Street. As it became more and more excited, a group of officers was called by the policemen who had been at the beach. 
James Crawford, a Negro, fired into the group of officers and was himself shot and killed by a Negro policeman who had been sent to help restore order. During the remainder of the afternoon of July 27th, many distorted rumors circulated swiftly throughout the South Side. The Negro crowd from 29th Street got into action, and white men who came in contact with it were beaten. In all, four white men were beaten, five were stabbed, and one was shot. As the rumors spread, new crowds gathered, mobs sprang into activity spontaneously, and gangs began to take part in the lawlessness. Farther to the west, as darkness came on, white gangsters became active. Negroes in white districts suffered severely at their hands. From 9 p.m. until 9 a.m., 27 Negroes were beaten, seven were stabbed, and four were shot. I grew up on 31st Street. Dr. Charles Branham. I remember playing hooky from school. It's the only time I ever did it. And every day I would go to the 31st Street beach and I would take off my clothes except my underwear. I would go wading in the water. I would then come back, lay on a rock, dry off and somehow as if by a miracle. At exactly three o'clock, I then return home. And so my mother did not know that I played hooky for a week until like (laughs) seven weeks later. And I had no idea what inspired me to do that, how dangerous it was. I mean, you got a kid virtually nude. I was probably seven or eight. And I'm hanging out on 31st Street Beach and had no idea of the significance of that beach to American history. One of the things we have to talk about is defensible spaces in Chicago history. It's a very important topic. Chicago is cut by bridges and by viaducts and by railroad tracks and by small parks as opposed to having a huge central park. And so it made it possible for people in neighborhoods to define themselves with greater precision. My borders are this park. They better not come through this viaduct. We'll beat them up. And so the Dan Ryan Expressway was a perfect wedge that was created, a bridge or barrier that was created later on, almost exactly along the lines of much of the racial violence of the 1919 race riot, as another way of defining where Black people lived and where white people lived on the south side of Chicago. Anyway, back to the commission report. Few clashes occurred on Monday morning. People of both races went to work as usual and even continued to work side by side as customary without signs of violence. But as the afternoon wore on, white men and boys living between the stockyards and the black belt sought malicious amusement in directing mob violence against Negro workers returning home. Streetcar routes, especially transfer points, were thronged with white people of all ages. Trolleys were pulled from wires and the cars brought under the control of mob leaders. Negro passengers were dragged to the street, beaten and kicked. The police were apparently powerless to cope with these numerous assaults. Four Negro men and one white assailant were killed, and 30 Negro men were severely beaten in the streetcar clashes. Now, just as a little bit of a context, it says uh, trolleys were pulled from wires. These electrically powered trolleys had an arm that went up and touched and made contact with electrified wires to power the trolleys and streetcars. So once that was pulled down, then the conductor couldn't even move the car. Right. And so then that allowed the mob to then go in and pull people out of the streetcars. I believe there's a lever that the conductor would pull to engage that arm that would touch the wire because I've seen them in movies and whatnot. So it wasn't like they were climbing up and jerry-rigging something. They were just overpowering the conductor. Right. So Patrick, we interviewed Claire Hartfield who is the author of this wonderful book I'm holding here, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919. And it was a pleasure to talk to her because not only is her book on the 1919 race riots excellent, she has a personal connection to the 1919 race riot through her grandmother. So let's go to the interview with Claire. Did your grandmother, who was from New Orleans, go to those great clubs down on the Stroll in in Bronzeville? Yeah. Yep. Here, Louis Armstrong, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, probably. When I was little, 
she used to tell us stories about her young adulthood because she was about 19 or 20 when she came here, I guess. She didn't talk so much about the music, but more about dancing and going sure. out wearing beautiful dresses. And it was yeah. that era where they were very- Having fun, having fun as a young person, fun. yeah. And it was your grandma that, that gave you the idea for this book. Yeah, it was kind of a combination of two things. So when I was really little, my mom used to need a break from the kids. Any mother can identify with that. And so she would (laughs) take us over to my grandmother's house and she'd get a couple hours by herself. And so we, my grandmother loved to tell stories. So most of the stories were about the joy that she had and, you know, how she met her husband and all that kind of stuff. She did tell this one story about Shortly after, because she arrived here in 1919, I'm not sure of the month, but probably a couple of months before the riot. And she got a job really quickly and it was in a different neighborhood outside of the black neighborhood. And on that Monday, she went to work and I guess everything was fine. But when she got on the streetcar to come back and the streetcar was starting to drive really into the middle of the riot area, it became apparent there were people out in the streets all around her. And then the streetcar wouldn't stop at any of the stops because it was too dangerous. And so it went all the way to the end of the line, which was way past her home. And then they made everybody get out. And as I tell the kids, they didn't have Uber back then. So she, <laughs> had, she had to walk, you know, back home through through this really wild, you know, space. And so she made it home safely. But that was something that I think I just tucked back in my unconscious memory. You know how you we forget these things. And then what happened was I was I was sort of rummaging around for a good topic to write about. And I was watching CNN actually one day and there were these people out in the streets. At first I had the sound off, so I didn't know what they were showing. And it actually was people protesting when Michael Brown was killed oh, yeah. in Ferguson, Missouri. And when I saw that, it just conjured up that memory of my grandmother's story. And I because I am interested in history, I thought, oh, I wonder what was really going on back then. That, that was a scary day because we know the riots started on Sunday the 27th. So this would have been the next day, Monday, you said, yeah. the 28th. And that's when there was, I think, four African-Americans killed it by 35th and state, probably yeah. one of the areas she was traveling through. Yes, exactly. And I don't, I'm not sure exactly where she lived, but I don't think it was that far from there. I think it might have been a little further north but close enough and you're right so what happened with the riot at first I don't know what she knew on that Sunday but when Eugene Williams got killed and then the police came to the beach and then there was gunfire people went back to their neighborhoods and they were all in an uproar about it but then it seemed to have died down a little bit of a lull and so I can imagine that when she went to work in the morning it was kind of quiet and it was okay. And then she was inside all day in a neighborhood that wasn't involved. And so it was only right. when she was coming back home, things had heated up again. Right. And she's on the streetcar and probably thinking about what's for dinner. And then there's this like mob on the street. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be terrifying. Yeah. Really terrifying. And we don't know if maybe your grandma saw white mobs or black mobs. I don't know. At the time, it was just probably just a wall of very angry men, probably. Yep. And I know from reading, you know, that they were attacking streetcars during the riot. I don't know exactly what happened with the streetcar she was on, but certainly I could imagine people banging on the windows, throwing rocks. People were being pulled off the streetcars and beaten or attacked and killed. Yeah. The Black Belt contributed its share of violence to the record of Monday afternoon and night. Rumors of white depredations and killings were current among the Negroes and led to acts of retaliation. An aged Italian peddler, one Lazzarini, was set upon by young Negro boys and stabbed to death. Eugene Temple, white launderman, was stabbed to death and robbed by three Negroes. A Negro mob made a demonstration outside Provident Hospital, an institution conducted by Negroes, because two injured whites who had been shooting right and left from a hurrying automobile on State Street were taken there. Other mobs stabbed six white men, shot five others, severely beat nine more, and killed two in addition to those named above. Rumor had it that a white occupant of the Angeles apartment house had shot a Negro boy from a fourth-story window. Negroes besieged the building. 
The white tenants sought police protection, and about 100 policemen, including some mounted men, responded. The mob of about 1,500 Negroes demanded the, quote, culprit, but the police failed to find him after a search of the building. A flying brick hit a policeman. There was a quick massing of the police, and a volley was fired into the Negro mob. Four Negroes were killed, and many were injured. It is believed that had not the Negroes lost faith in the white police force, it is hardly likely that the Angeles riot would have occurred. At this point, Monday night, both whites and Negroes showed signs of panic, each race grouped by itself. Small mobs began systematically in various neighborhoods to terrorize and kill. Gangs in the white districts grew bolder, finally taking the offensive and raids through territory, quote, invaded, unquote, by Negro home seekers. Boys between 16 and 22 banded together to enjoy the excitement of the chase. Automobile raids were added to the rioting Monday night. Cars from which rifle and revolver shots were fired were driven at great speed through sections inhabited by Negroes. Negroes defended themselves by, quote, unquote, sniping and volley firing from ambush and barricade. So great was the fear of these raiding parties that the Negroes distrusted all motor vehicles and frequently opened fire on them without waiting to learn the intent of the occupants. This type of warfare was kept up spasmodically all Tuesday and resumed with vigor Tuesday night. Patrick, one of the little-known matters I learned about from studying the time period of the 1919 race riot was the influence of the 8th Regiment made up of African-American soldiers who fought with honor in World War I. Yes, they were known as the Black Devils, if I recall correctly. And they also had a band that played jazz, and the French were, like, enthralled with them. They had never heard this kind of music before. Well, that was right at the very beginning of the development of jazz. Right. And Dr. Branham introduces us in the segment to the influence of the 8th Regiment in understanding the riots. You talked about the 8th Regiment. That was, of course, the African-American unit that went and fought in World War One. The regiment was also involved in the Spanish-American War. And you had a couple of African-Americans who were prominent in the 8th Regiment in the administration of Cuba, of towns in Cuba, in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. Oh, I had no idea. That's fascinating. Well, it's also a perfect example of a way in which African-Americans could organize themselves because the second elected African-American alderman came out of the 8th Regiment. That's what sets apart like the Red Summer of 1919 because people forget that the African-American men had served in World War I and they knew how to use a rifle. August Meyer, I remember August Meyer being in my home when I was writing a manuscript. August Meyer wanted a hardback copy of one of my cherished possessions, Negro Thought in America, which I think is still one of the underappreciated studies in African-American intellectual thought, even though August Meyer was white. And I wouldn't give it to him. He didn't have a paper. He didn't have a hardback copy of his own book. And I wouldn't give it to him. Anyway, August Meyer had this phrase that I always liked. He called it retaliatory violence. And so you are absolutely right. One of the distinguishing features of the Red Summer was that African-Americans fought back. And so you would have white groups of bullies driving through the African-American community, firing out of their windows, and then you would have blacks on the rooftop firing back at the car. So that soon stopped. And this meant several things. One, of course, is it marks the Red Summer as a new stage. Historically, African-American riots have been one-sided. They've been pogroms. Right. Where the white community invades the black community. Notice all the attention now to Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. That wasn't blacks and whites fighting so much, although it was occasioned by African-Americans showing a bit of backbone and trying to prevent an African-American defendant who might very well have been innocent from being lynched. But you didn't have blacks invading the white community. You had whites invading the black community. And that's pretty much the way most of the race riots occur. Remember, Chicago had a mini race riot in 1905 over a labor dispute. Some blacks had been imported as scab labor. And uh, blacks and whites were fighting on the streets in 1905. It didn't bubble up into a full-scale white community versus black community event as did the 1919 race riot. But I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't another event that historians simply haven't gotten to, where you have groups of whites and groups of blacks fighting, and that the issue was probably labor. And so what made most of these events different is that almost always they were whites assaulting blacks, 
Maybe they might fight back with fists, but 1919, they're fighting back with guns. They took their guns home with them. They basically defended their neighborhoods or defended their homes. Even though the majority of those who died were Blacks, some whites died during the race riot of 1919. And that's another reason why Chicago's leadership class, business and politics, wanted to sweep it as much under the rug as possible and wanted to sweep the race riots that occurred in the early 1960s under the rug as much as possible. At midnight Monday, streetcar clashes ended by reason of a general strike on the surface and elevated lines. The street railway tie-up was complete for the remainder of the week. But on Tuesday morning, this was a new source of terror for those who tried to walk to their places of employment. Men were killed en route to their work through hostile territory. Idle men congregated on the streets and gang rioting increased. A white gang of soldiers and sailors in uniform, augmented by civilians, raided the Loop or downtown sections of Chicago early Tuesday, killing two Negroes and beating and robbing several others. In the course of these activities, they wantonly destroyed property of white businessmen. Now, Patrick, let's just reflect on that. We have a white gang of soldiers and sailors in uniform terrorizing the loop. I never heard that. It's crazy. Of soldiers and sailors. I've heard of civil unrest like we had in the George Floyd riots made up of all different types of people, but I never heard of a riot of soldiers and sailors. Yeah, I mean, or like the 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago, where demonstrations turned to riots. It's pretty remarkable. I think I'd read later, some of these folks went to, say, restaurants or hotels in the loop, going into kitchens and pulling out black workers to then beat them or harass them. And it actually happened, I think, at the Palmer House was one incident in particular. Well, that's remarkable. You learn something new every day. Back to the commission report. Gangs sprang up as far south as 63rd Street in Inglewood and in the section west of Wentworth Avenue near 47th Street. Premeditated depredations were the order of the night. Many Negro homes in mixed districts were attacked and several of them were burned. Furniture was stolen or destroyed. When raiders were driven off, they would return again and again until their designs were accomplished. The contagion of the race war broke over the boundaries of the south side and spread to the Italians on the west side. These communities became excited over rumor, and an Italian crowd killed a Negro, Joseph Lovings. Wednesday saw a material lessening of crime and violence. The Black Belt and the district immediately west of it were still storm centers. But the peak of the rioting had apparently passed, although the danger of fresh outbreaks of magnitude was still imminent. Although companies of the militia had been mobilized in nearby armories as early as Monday night, July 28th, it was not until Wednesday evening at 10.30 that the mayor yielded to pressure and asked for their help. Rain on Wednesday night and Thursday drove idle people of both races into their homes. The temperature fell, and with it the white heat of the riots. From this time on, the violence was sporadic, scattered, and meager. The riots seemed well under control if not actually ended. Friday witnessed only a single reported injury. At 3.35 a.m. Saturday, incendiary fires burned 49 houses in the immigrant neighborhood west of the stockyards. 948 people, mostly Lithuanians, were made homeless, and the property loss was about a quarter of a million dollars. Responsibility for these fires was never fixed. The riot virtually ceased on Saturday. For the next few days, injured were reported occasionally, and by August 8th, the riot zone had settled down to normal and the militia was withdrawn. The riot period was 13 days in length. From Sunday, July 27th through Thursday, August 8th, the day on which the troops were withdrawn. On this time, only the first seven days witnessed active rioting. The remaining days marked the return towards normal. In the seven active days, rioting was not continuous, but intermittent then fairly quiescent for hours. The first three days saw the most acute disturbance, and in this span, there were three main periods, 4 p.m. Sunday till 3 a.m. Monday, 9 a.m. Monday till 9 a.m. Tuesday, noon Tuesday till midnight. This left two long intervals of comparative quiet, six hours on Monday and then three hours on Tuesday. 
On the fourth day, Wednesday, there were scattered periods of rioting, each of a few hours duration. Thus, Monday afternoon to Tuesday morning was the longest stretch of active rioting in the first four days. You can imagine, though, even though this summarizes this whole thing into these small segments, throughout that period, people would have been pretty much terrorized. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you just don't know when something's going to break out or that you walked onto the wrong block or some gang is going to turn the corner and head towards you or some drive-by shooting from a car from another neighborhood is going to come in and start opening fire. Well, Patrick, put it this way. Nobody could look at their phones and get an alert. Yeah, right. Couldn't check Facebook or anything. Right. I think back to the you know, some of the protests around George Floyd, and I could flip on the TV and see helicopter shots of stuff going on downtown, but you didn't have anything like that in 1919? No, and during that George Floyd protest, remember, we got alerts that the bridges were going up. Mm -hmm. You couldn't come in from the north side. Well, and being a bridge historian, I was half tempted to go down there just to get the photography of the bridges all going up. That's a shot that you don't get anymore since 9-11. No, you don't. And you and I talked about it. That was the first time the bridges were used tactically since the beer riots, right? Yeah, the beer lager riots of 1855. That was certainly a historic moment. But again, this was just about three pages of this commission report, but that's excellent reporting. They just laid out the facts. Yes. And they go into a great deal of minutia and detail, blow by blow. They go back and recount eyewitness testimony and commissioner reports and police reports. They dug into census data, and it was quite an extensive research effort to put all this together. And of course, they had not just the 12 commissioners, but then they broke up and developed a bunch of subcommittees on a variety of different topics. So it was a really an extensive effort. And I think shamefully, most of the report was then just shelved and ignored. Patrick, as you know, there were many criminal prosecutions after the 1919 riot of those that were involved. But Charles Branham told us in an interview about a pattern that emerged during those procedures. I remember writing about the fact that uh, in the initial stages of the race riot of 1919, the prosecuting attorney for the city of Chicago was a man named McClay Hoyne. I don't know if you've ever run across that name. I did in the research, yeah. Initially, when the race riot was going, Clay Hoyne ran for mayor in 1919 and came in, I think, third or fourth. He didn't do very well. But initially, when the race riot was going on, all of the people that were arrested were African American. Mm-hmm. Even though most of the people being killed were African American, and even though much of the violence was white mobs invading black areas, the only people that McClay Hoyne was bringing before a grand jury were blacks. And something very unusual happened. The grand jury told McClay Hoyne, we're not going to indict any more rioters until you bring us some white rioters. Wow. I have no idea why they decided that or why they had the you can indict a ham sandwich, as, as the old saying goes. Grand <laughs> juries are the plaything of prosecutors, and they have right. complete control, uh, unlike a trial. But McClay Hoyne blamed black people for electing Big Bill Thompson in 1919. He sat out four years, between 1915 and 1919, basically because he was so corrupt, even he was embarrassed. <laughs> and, this, and this was before Al Capone got right. his, his fingers into the Big Bill, the Builders, administration. Essentially, McClay Hoyne was angry at the Black community for not having voted for him, and he decided to basically only indict African Americans with the race riot of 1919. There was an article in the Chicago Defender on September 6, 1919, and the headline is Flay Hoyne as Riot Prosecutor, and the subtitle is Citizens Ask for Removal of the State's Attorney in Punishing Race Rioters. Yeah, and I think that's of a piece with what we've been talking about in terms of the relationship between the race right of 1919 and the Great Migration, because you have leadership that is made. This largely rehabilitates Oscar DePriest. Oscar DePriest is the first African-American alderman because Ed Wright has been leading campaigns in 1912, 1914, and 1915 to elect an African-American alderman, and each time... The African-American candidate 
comes closer and closer to victory. Now remember, this was at a time when Chicago had two aldermen per ward. There were 35 wards, each had two aldermen. George Harding, one of the richest men in Chicago, who later became Big Bill Thompson's treasurer, and who was one of the managers for Jack Johnson, and whose armory collection is at the art museum downtown, George Harding <laughs> decides, I'm not going to run again because I might lose. And so that opens up the door for an African-American candidate in a majority Black area. And the priest, of all people, is chosen because he's not a part of the Ed Wright campaign. And he had remained loyal to the white leadership of the Republican Party in the second ward. And therefore, he was rewarded by being selected by them as the first African-American alderman. And so everybody loves him for a short period of time. But by 1919, he's indicted for corruption. His lawyer, by the way, was Clarence Darrow. And he gets off. But he's a little too tainted for the Republican machine in the second ward. And he will wander several years in the wilderness trying to rebuild his reputation, even moving into the new third ward. But during the race riot of 1919, he becomes kind of a folk hero because he drives into the stockyards and literally takes African-Americans out of the stockyards, cross white territory, back into the black community. And it's that kind of personal heroism that rehabilitates him. He's no longer Oscar DePriest, the corrupt, white-dominated politician. He now is a leader of the black community. There was sort of an amnesia about the race riots. I think you're uh right. But I think I understand. They tried to solve the problem without ever addressing the causes of the riot. If you look at what I think is an excellent summary of the riot that was done in the early 1920s, I urge people to read it because I don't know if other states did that. But Illinois did a full-scale investigation. I think this must run for 2,000 pages of the factors. And so there's a lot of excellent African-American history in it. And Robin S. Abbott was on the panel. This is the same commission report Chris and I have been reading from for the accounts of the 1919 riot. And the commission itself was made up of six white and six black commissioners, including Robert Abbott, who was a lawyer and newspaper publisher and editor of the Chicago Defender. And the fear and the reason why there's so much attention was drawn to it was that African-Americans feared that this would lead to the segregation of African-Americans in Chicago. It was not an unfounded fear because an African-American alderman actually had proposed the segregation of African-Americans and whites by law in the city of Chicago. So that's nothing that, you, that people didn't want to pay attention to. But riots are bad for business. I love the title of your book, A Few Red Drops. Of course, mm -hmm. that's the Carl Sandburg poem, I Am the People, the Mob. Yeah. How did you think of that as your title? Well, Carl Sandburg was actually intimately in the mix of the Chicago race rights. He was a journalist, as well as writing other kinds of poetry and all that. And he covered the race riot, but also covered the time leading up to that and talked a lot about the issues that were brewing for so long before they exploded in the summer of 1919. So as part of my research, I read a whole book, which is a compilation of the articles that he wrote around that time. And so then I probably, I, I don't remember the specifics of how I wound my way to this poem, but I became interested in looking at other things that he had written. And this poem really speaks a lot to what's really still important today, which is the sort of seething of frustrations and being beaten down that stay low level for a while and then they explode periodically. Sometimes... I growl, shake myself and spatter a few red drops for history to remember. Then I forget. When I, the people, learn to remember. When I, the people, use the lessons of yesterday and no longer forget who robbed me last year, who played me for a fool then, 
There will be no speaker in all the world, say the name the people, with any fleck of a sneer in his voice or any far-off smile of derision. The mob, the crowd, the mass will arrive then. So he talks about that cycle. And so I thought that was, it spoke a lot to basically what I was trying to talk about in this book. If we look back at the histories of many peoples, right, that's what happens. And one of the reasons that spoke to me, in addition to really being about this particular story, is also I write for young people. And I think sometimes it's hard when you're in that early stage of life for you to see how your life and what's going on in this current time fits into the larger scope of history. So part of the point of this book is to get young people to think about what's happening now. And particularly when this book came out, that was right around the time of the George Floyd murder. And I did go around and talk to a lot of young people to get them to look at what's going on in their lives now in the context of what happened 100 years ago. Your book came out at a time of just unbelievable parallels. Yeah. The explosion of all of those undercurrents got a lot of publicity, not only in Chicago, but around the country. And it did get people to think about it. It's interesting that when I looked at and researched the aftermath, a lot of people who were pretty liberal by the standards of the time would sort of scratch their heads and say, how could this happen? And that came out in some of the writings. And then if you look at the Chicago Defender, which was the paper that really spoke to mostly the African-American point of view, they were saying, we're basically reaping what we've sown. So there was a very different understanding and the events that led up to the riot were looked at with quite different lenses, depending on what the experiences of the person was. And I think that, again, that is similar now too. The basic foundations of the systemic segregation and, and discrimination were laid layer upon layer. In fact, when I started researching the book, I assumed that I would just look back a couple of years or something like that to find the catalyst for it. And there is some of that in that World War I led to the Great Migration. And then when people came back from the war, the economy contracted and there were too many people fighting for the same jobs and the same land and all of that. So that's a big catalyst. But I also had to keep going back further and further, really, to the city's beginnings to see that actually these systems really were there from the very beginning. Yeah, you talked about the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850 and how Black Chicagoans were really worried because they did not feel safe in Illinois with this federal law that one had to obey. Yeah, that was definitely the case. And Illinois had its own statutory restrictions that were called the Black Codes. It severely undercut the rights of Black people, including not being able to bring a white person to court. So they really didn't have a legal protection of their freedoms. So what's interesting about the race riots was there were 38 deaths. 23 of them were African-Americans. 15 of the deaths were white. 500 injured. But then there's groups like the Lithuanians, 948 people were made homeless by fires, arson. We don't know who set them. I don't think anyone ever went to jail. How come we don't know this? I mean, until I was delving into this, it's like a blank slate of history. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, people do ask me that and I don't have a definitive answer. I mean, there are some components to it. I think that the advent of video and having more video has made eras since then more accessible. People relate to that and they remember it better. I think also people have very short imaginations about history often. And so right. something that happened 100 years ago can seem like it happened in the Stone Ages or something like that. I think sometimes these kinds of stories are not ones that we want to tell ourselves because... They're not the prettiest side of America, and they offer evidence that contradicts some of our highest ideals. And so I think that's part of it. I know certainly when I went to school, which was a long time ago, we learned a, a nicer history of the United States that was more about the melting pot and all of that. There's a whole other part of this that has to do with what was a change in Black identity 
and it did really relate directly to World War I because men all over the country were called upon to defend the liberty of people overseas and they did go. Some of the people overseas received them more hospitably than here in America, the French in particular. But when they came back, they thought, okay, now we've fought, we've been injured, we've given up our lives for our country. And they had expectations that when they got back, they would be accepted as full citizens. So when there was pushback against that, they said, nah, we're not, we're not going back to the way things were. And so the whole change at that point there have been books written about it. It was called The New Black Consciousness. And it was basically saying, look, we've done as much as any other American citizen has done to fight for our country. And we expect to be treated as full citizens. Something was very different than before 1917. One of the things I really was impressed about in your book was when I was reading it, I thought I'd spilled something on it because there was these little dots <laughs> on the chapter heading. It was the red blood. Yep. Very nice. But you have great pictures because, as you know, there's a very limited amount of photographs of that summer. And we usually say the same ones over and over, but you had excellent pictures that I had not seen before. Well, thank you. Every time I write something, there's always a surprise. So we finished, we edited all that stuff, and she said, okay, great. Now you need to go and find 65 photos to put into the book. I went out and I thought about each chapter and what was in it and did research. The History Museum Library was really full of stuff, but I also went to UIC and UFC and the Chicago Defender. You know, you can read through all of that and then they will license the photos that I chose. So it was a whole nother research project. Yeah, because you usually see like the same three or four photos and there's the terrible one of a black man being stoned. Yes. You see that one on quite often, but it's like four or five pictures that which they seem to recycle all the time. And yours were just so different from that. And so I appreciated it as someone oh, who thank you. dabbles in, in reading history. So I know it's not easy, Claire. No, but it was it was fun. It was I'm always game for something new. And I had never <laughs> I'd never done photograph research. So there it is. Did anything surprise you in your research? Did you come in at one angle and then come out of it at a different direction? I think I had a general sense of the history. So most of it was more confirmed a little bit that I knew already. I did not know who Big Bill Thompson was. He was a character. And so it was surprising to me that this person who was born into to a very different culture and economic status took it upon himself to really champion the Black community. Like one of the things that he did, the film Birth of a Nation had just come out at that time. And he would not allow it to be shown in Chicago. Oh, and wow. some people were really steamed about that. But for the Black community, that was a statement. And so some things like that did surprise me. President Wilson screened it at the White House. Yeah, well, he was not one of the favorites of the Black community. <laughs> no, he wasn't. I think his family was from South Carolina originally, and he thought like a South Carolinian of that era, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Big Bill is fascinating, and Patrick being our bridge historian, just about every good bridge in Chicago has William Hale Thompson's name on it. Mm. I think part of him always kind of just wanted to go off and be either a cowboy or a movie star. Right. <laughs> the City of Scoundrels, which you referenced in your book, Chris would suggest I take a read of, you know, they sort of characterize him as he, he never met a ribbon cutting he didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> but also, he very much latched on to the plan of Chicago and saw that as a great boondoggle for graft and political power, but also building projects because he did genuinely believe in improving Chicago. Yeah. And he was pretty wily, both politically and infrastructure-wise, to build a lot of bridges, uh, particularly in the late 19-teens and 20s. And he saw the, the Black population, too, that was very much hemmed in in that Black district, kind of by the railroads and the Rock Island and then the kind of Illinois Central, more or less. That was a huge voting block that he could leverage yeah. and was willing to risk some of his political fortunes on supporting the Blacks, although he wasn't always as committed as I'm sure they would have liked. Well, I think he talked a good game, so he, he was very flamboyant. During the riot itself, he seemed to be paralyzed in terms of trying to assess what was good for him politically, and so he dithered, and he wouldn't do anything about the riot because he was in this thing with the governor, and he probably was somewhat disappointed. I didn't get into all of that too much, but he didn't always put his actions where his mouth was. Right. 
politically he was in a big battle with the governor who then sort of had control of the militia. And so he didn't want to look like he was kowtowing to the governor who had already suggested this, that they come in and help restore order. If you go ahead and have the militia come in, then you're kind of admitting that your police force is insufficient. You're not sending a vote of confidence for your police chief, who always thinks that they can control it and handle it. Right. They eventually sent them in and it immediately calmed down after that. What I found interesting, Claire, about reading the commission report was the riots weren't even over with yet before people were petitioning the governor, Frank Loudon, to put this commission together. That's amazing. It says here, 81 citizens approached the governor through channels on August the 1st. Now that you mentioned the commission, the way that was handled maybe was one thing that surprised me in that it seemed like an honest attempt to put together an evaluation of the actual root causes of the riot and not just to whitewash it. And they had this six black commission members and six white commission members, and they actually paid a reputable researcher. Obviously, it's voluminous. It's over 600 pages. And then the other thing that was interesting about it was that instead of pointing fingers at the rioters on both sides, they really looked and basically said, it was kind of like the, the line that the prince has in Romeo and Juliet, where he says, all are responsible for this. And that's what the commission concluded, you know, and looked at preachers and business people and politicians and police officers and citizens and all that and said, we all have to change. So the report itself, like the conclusions of the report were much more honest than I would have expected. And forthright. Yeah, and they were very forthright, but then nothing ever came of it. Right. It's very well written. And to those who are listening, you can go online and, and read it. Patrick and I have delved into it and it's excellent. It's very clear writing and telling of the events. Uh, that struck me too about your book, Claire. A Few Red Drops is just a straight telling, and the facts speak for themselves about how disabused the African-American, the Black population in Chicago was. And it's almost surprising that there haven't been more riots when you see and understand the history and just the injustices that have gone on again and again. Yeah, I think Carl Sandburg was right when he said that we recognize these things for a short time in history and then we exhale and we push it under the rug again for several decades usually and then flares up again. But that doesn't mean we have to keep repeating it. At some point, break that cycle if we have the will and make a difference. It's like the embers of a fire that's unattended and then along comes some event that just flares up again. Mm -hmm. I really liked how you profiled like Packingtown, for example, how you kind of laid out the stockyards and you talked about Swift and Armour and just the economic engine that they brought to that part of town because that meant jobs for blacks and whites. So my grandfather worked in the stockyards. He worked with African-Americans. When he got injured, African-Americans came to the house to visit him. And that paints a totally different picture of the 1930s and 40s for me. Yeah. And it was better than Sometimes events in history push us in the right direction. So before World War I, the stockyards were extremely segregated. And even though the people who worked in them worked in terrible conditions and didn't make as much money as they should, and if they did get injured, there was really little that was given to them to them out. Right. So that wasn't great. But the Black population, for the most part, couldn't even get jobs in the stockyards and were confined to service jobs, which paid a lot less. But because of World War I and all these people going off to war who were working in the stockyards, all these white young men going off to war at a time when the stockyards were being asked to ramp up their business, because in addition to feeding everybody else, they had to feed the armies overseas. Right. And so they needed bodies and they needed them bad. And there simply weren't enough people in Chicago. In fact, just to show that they weren't leaping over themselves to hire black people, they first tried to hire white women. And it's interesting, actually, because before that time, many immigrant white women did not go to work unless they were unmarried. Once they were married, that was it. But with their husbands then gone overseas and the army pay didn't match up, some of them had to go to work in order to survive. But it wasn't enough. And so they didn't have another population within the local area they could pull from. And so that's why they brought Black workers up from the South. And actually, after people came back from the war and the number of jobs shrank, then there was a big push among some people to try to get the Black people who had migrated up to go back down to the South. 
And the Southerners also were trying to entice Black people back down to the South. And so they would say things like, you don't want to live up there where it's so cold. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the people who had migrated said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> then there's always been a long union problem up North, but in certain of the lower level jobs, the unions did then integrate. Right. I think it was the Knights of Labor in the 1880s. And of course, E. Philip Randolph and, and the Pullman Porters, they were very important. Yeah. Patrick, we began this podcast by stating how there was no public memorial for the 1919 race riot. That's right. There's none that I was aware of. But I'm happy to say that that will change. I was reading in the Chicago Sun-Times this February that Peter Cole, a history professor at Western Illinois University, joined by Franklin Cozy Gay, a native of the South Side, have begun a program to place markers at various corners in Chicago to honor those that died. It sounds like a pretty cool project, actually. And now that you mention it, I do remember reading a little bit about that. And the glass blocks are actually going to be produced as part of the Firebird Community Arts nonprofit. And they have a mission to empower and connect people through the healing practice of glass blowing and ceramics. And so my understanding is that then they're having people in the community create these glass blocks that will memorialize those different incidences in the 1919 race riots. Peter Cole, the history professor, got the idea on a trip to Germany. He was walking through a cobblestone area, and he looked down, and there were blocks in the cobblestones with the names of Jews that had been taken from their home right there at the location and sent off to concentration camps. And this horrific reminder of past evil inspired this 1919 project. Wow. One of the spots they're going to begin with is at the corner of Adams and Wabash for Paul Hardwick, who was a African-American 50-year-old man, killed on that spot on July 29th, 1919. Well, and, and I think that's the point, right, is that they will commemorate Chicago's not-so-great history, but maybe bring it to better and higher awareness to the masses, basically. And Adams and Wabash is a place that I was walking past just the other day, and it's the hustle and bustle of the city. So to ground it that way with a glass brick to show that someone died there because of their race is jarring. Definitely. We ended our interview with Claire with the question we ask everyone who we interview, and that is our time machine question. That's right. I think one of your favorite questions. It is, and it's very revealing, and Claire gave a very interesting answer to this question. So let's end the program today with her answer to that question. Thank you for listening. Claire, we ask everybody we interview this question. If you had a time machine and you could go anywhere in Chicago in history, <laughs> where would you go and what time period? Oh my goodness. Well, one of the things that I would like to see, I'm not sure, I don't think I would want to live there. But I've always thought it would be really interesting to actually go back to Pullman during the time that they tried to build sort of like a little utopian society yes, there. And right. I would love to see what that really felt like and what it operated like. It sounded so different than anything else. And I know that it failed in the end, but it was an interesting idea. That's one thing that's pretty novel that I think I would like to see. And then maybe in reading about Ida B. Wells and about her work, on women's rights. And they did go door to door to get new people signed up to vote. And I, in my spare time, I do volunteer work related to elections that are very close. And I think about her sometimes as I'm writing postcards or doing whatever I'm doing, because she was such a, an amazing organizer. And the work that she did in getting women signed up to vote had a big impact on politics in Chicago. So audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment.
Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.